listening to Mr. Radio, and I'm your host, Marshall. As a New York freelance musician, today's guest has played more gigs and in more situations than he could possibly ever list. But moving to New York in the early 80s, a lot of young players started gigging in the Latin circuit, which was huge at that time. A player could work with multiple Latin groups and multiple gigs in one night, often not finishing before the sun came up. It was through these gigs that he met many players in other bands, and eventually found his way to playing many engagements with Latin artists such as Celia Cruz, Tito Fuentes, and Dave Valentin. In the 90s, he fronted a contemporary fusion group of his original music and arrangements led by tenor and bass trombones and released a sampler CD. Upon hearing his CD, Jazz's magazine voted him one of the top 10 unsigned jazz artists in the country and released a compilation CD which included his original composition, Night Child. International recording artist and founder of hip bone music, Michael Davis, writes about our guest saying that he, quote, brings his A-game as instrumentalist, composer, and arranger to his dynamic new release, Into the Night. It is my honor to introduce today's guest, Eric Goletz. Welcome to the show, Eric. Thanks, Marshall. It's great to be here. Thanks for having me. You played with my friend John Krasnow, I believe. I sure did. You know, that was a great experience for me because John and I met, and he... And I'll tell you how we met. We, he had a studio at the Charles Colin building on 53rd Street, a practice studio that he would come at. He, would, he, he only came at night. And I had a practice studio there, and I would teach lessons there and practice. And we got to know each other because he came down to my studio one night and, uh, and said, man, you sound great. And he said, I'm, I, I, I'm, gonna, I'm doing this album. Um, you wanna, you wanna, uh, I'd love to have you play on it. I said, I would love to. And, and I said, you know, if you need any charts, let me know because I'm also a, an, an arranger. So I ended up doing a couple of the charts on the album, but certainly he pulled together a great cast of guys for that. Paul Ostermeyer was on it, and Valerie Pomerov was on it. And I remember that album very well, because that was one of the first album sessions that I did as both a player and a writer in New York. It was somewhere around, it was in the late 80s, somewhere, I don't remember the year exactly. I think it was close to 90, maybe? Oh, yeah, that sounds yeah, yeah. about right. Yeah. I liked John. I mean, John was... He was a great guy. He's all excited about the album. And I thought he had this way about it. It's so hard to describe it. You know, like like the titles of his tunes, like one of the titles, you know, Twist of the Knife and Blues About Nothing for Nobody. It's kind of a negative, sarcastic thing about it. But yet he was, I mean, I, I, I really loved the guy. He was such a great guy. And I, I could not believe when I, when I heard that he'd passed away. I mean, I just could not believe it because I was hoping that we would be able to do uh, more, you know, projects together. Ideally, I would like to interview everybody in that band. I've interviewed Paul. Uh, have you been in touch with any of the other members? No, I, ha- I haven't talked to any of the other guys for years. And I, if, you, if you were to do that, I would love to be a part of that. I'm just having difficulty contacting people. I'm not quite sure how Paul got in contact with me. I think I put Twist of the Knife up as a sample on my podcast. And, well, he and that's, ma- how we, that's how we got it, because he put up Bruja, which is one of the tunes I wrote. Right. That's how he, I got in contact with him. But if, if you ever can figure out how to get in contact with the rest of the band, well, let if me you know. Have a, if you have a list of the names of the rest of the guys, because I don't remember a lot of them, I would be happy to try to find out. I know Jerry Vamola was on it, too, tenor sax player. You can text me or email me a list of the rest of the guys. I can put out some feelers and see if I can get a hold of some of them. That would be great. I want to start off by asking you, 
How old were you when you started to play the trombone? <laughs> Actually, I was in seventh grade, but that was not my first introduction into music. My father was a professional musician, professional pianist, and professional big band arranger and orchestrator. He was from Germany, and he migrated to this country in 57. He spoke with a very thick German accent, and when each of my brother and sister and I hit six years old, he said, you will learn to play the piano in his very thick German accent. I started in, uh, actually, my first taste of music, in learning music, was at the ripe age of six, playing the piano. It was all classical piano studies and theory and, and you know, all of that stuff. It was because of him, he had a recording studio in the basement when I was, when I was young, from the time I can ever remember, and musicians were always coming over to the house, and there was always recordings going on, and then he eventually started a group in Denver, where I grew up, called the Denver Youth Orchestra, which was made up of basically all kids from the range from the ages of 8 till about 16, 17 years old. It was a big band, and he wrote all the arrangements. When this started... I had been playing piano from the time I was six. Around nine years old, I started gravitating to wanting to play guitar, and I started learning guitar. By this time, I'd already knew how to read music, and I started taking guitar lessons. And then it was, after studying piano, it's very easy to pick up other instruments because visually, the keyboard represents everything. It represents every clef, every key. And for me, that visual representation of the keyboard, I found it very easy to transfer what I knew from piano to another instrument. So I started playing guitar and eventually started playing guitar in my father's band, the Denver Youth Orchestra. It was in this band that hearing all these players, and that was my first introduction to the trombone. From the very first time I really started hearing the trombone, I, I thought, wow, that is one cool instrument. That is just, I, I always thought about it. And, and of course, I, I loved the piano and the and theory, and I and enjoyed playing guitar, but I kept thinking about the trombone. Then my brother and I, my brother was a bass player, and we started working with my father professionally when we were 11 years old. He would take us out on to do trio gigs because he was playing six nights a week solo piano in clubs and in country clubs and, 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 and uh, hotels and things all around Denver. Back then, you know, those kinds of gigs were readily available. As a guitar player, my brother and I started working with my father at a very young age. And there was one particular Saturday night I couldn't play with them because I was very sick. And so I stayed home with my mom. And, of course, at that time, the Lawrence Welk show was on, and my mom was watching the Lawrence Welk show. As I was sitting there, not feeling good, missing the gig, you know, Lawrence Welk would always feature some of the musicians in the band. And this particular night, it was the trombone player that was called out as a feature. I sat there and listened to this guy and listened to that, and I thought, that's what I want to do. I, I've got to play that instrument. From that point on, it was all about wanting to play the trombone. So I started asking my parents, this was in the summertime, and I started asking my parents, I want a trombone for Christmas. I want, yeah, I want to learn this instrument. I want to play. I want to play. I would draw pictures of it. I would, I would draw pictures of it and, and, and tape them to my parents' wall in their bedroom. And, and, and I even started learning. I went to the local music store and got some books, and I, I started learning the positions of the trombone before I even had one. I wanted to play it so badly. Anyway, in answer to your question, then, you know, that trombone came at Christmas, and that was it. I've never looked back. That has been my instrument since the very first day I ever ever actually blew a note on it. Well, you and I, I guess, looked at the Lawrence Welk show in, in different ways. I just remember the soap bubbles. Did, <laughs> yes. did the look of the trombone or the sound of the trombone, or was it a combination of the look and sound that intrigued you? It was definitely a combination of the look and the sound. And I think probably particularly the sound. I've heard 
some people, you know, in, in equating instruments and sounds of nature that the trombone is one of the instruments that, that most closely resembles the human voice because of the tessitura. I think it's probably more with males. I'm not sure. But I just know that it, the sound of it totally intrigued me, and I thought the look of it was cool, too, both of them. The trumpet didn't really ever appeal to me, nor did the saxophone, but it was a trombone that, man, when I really started thinking about it, I knew that that's exactly what it was that I wanted to do. Your father was a pianist? and. Yes. Was he the one who gave you piano lessons? No, in fact, he thought it was important that I don't study with him. He felt it was important that I study with somebody who, whose foundation was based in classical music and that I learned important things like theory and reading and uh, harmony and all that stuff. My parents sought out a very well-respected piano teacher who taught in this program that was called the Progressive Series of Piano. I'm not sure if it's still around, but back in those days, these were piano teachers that were certified to teach in this particular program where there was heavy emphasis on all of that. I had my piano lesson once a week, and then I had a once a week theory lesson. So I had to go twice to this teacher, once for piano, once for theory. And then I, was, I had homework assignments, obviously both playing-wise and theory-wise. So my father thought it was important that I'd learn that, but not from him. And I think that he was right, because then later on, as I got older and I started to understand theory and harmony, he started teaching me jazz harmony and theory and started teaching me improvisation. Without that really fundamental knowledge in the theory that I got, I, I think that would have been kind of difficult to do, or, or at least limited. Was your father disappointed that you did not follow the piano? Oh, no. Well, as a matter of fact, the piano it has always been my second instrument. In college, I was an actually a theory and composition major, and the piano was, you had to have you had to be able to play repertoire as a theory and composition major, which means I had to play all the classics, you know, Bach, Beethoven and Bach and Chopin. And, and so the piano was always there. As a matter of fact, when I was in high school, my dad had some gigs going. Actually, it was more, I was in college, my first few years in college. And I had gravitated, I mean, just through years of playing through his studies and playing with other people, I had really been able to do a lot in terms of playing jazz piano and playing tunes. And there was even when I was in high school, my father sent me out to sub for him on some gigs with a trio. But he was thrilled, of course, that the trombone was the instrument that I, my number one instrument. But the piano has always been there and still is. Even, for example, on this new release that's coming out, I do all the additional keyboard work. And I have the grand piano at home that I sit down and play all the time. I don't think I'd ever know what life is like without music and without the piano, because it's always been there ever since my earliest remembrances of it. Now, you say that in your home you listen to classical music and that your father was performing jazz. What other genres of music influenced you in your career? It's funny, because early on, especially when I was in high school, I got bitten by that whole funk type of thing that was coming, not just Motown, but that whole soul funk, Isley Brothers, and that whole thing. I was just so intrigued by that because I loved the grooves. And, I, and especially when you started hearing some of that stuff with horns, I was totally intrigued by that. Then, you know, some a group like Chase, for example, there was four trumpets and a totally rock-influenced rhythm section and rock and funk and all this stuff. And, and that kind of thing really, really sparked my imagination because as early on as that, I was picturing myself being a trombonist leading a group like that or playing a group that had that kind of exciting rhythmic propulsion. As much as I, of course, love playing jazz and all of that, it was that kind of thing that really sparked my imagination. And I started thinking about compositionally, that kind of thing, as early on as when I was in high school. Aside from The Music Man, which uh, features 76 trombones, is it unusual for a trombone to be the lead instrument in a group? I mean, if you 
think of, whether it be traditional jazz groups or contemporary jazz groups. No, it's not. When you're thinking of playing like straight ahead jazz, and, and there's certainly a lot of great players out there that have fronted groups, John Fetchock and Conrad Herwig, and some of these guys where, you know, they fronted these great jazz groups and the guys are great players. There was not a lot of a trombone leading a group based on more of a rock and a funk type of rhythmic propulsion. There didn't seem to be a lot of that, even though there was a lot of great trombone players out there that did you know, a lot of great jazz players, certainly, but you didn't hear a lot of that. That also had to do with, in terms of my development as a composer and as a player, I, I, as time was going on, when I finished high school and went to college and then eventually when I moved to New York, it was all I was thinking about was writing the music that I was hearing more of a funk and a rock fusion or a blend of those different types of styles led by the trombone because that kind of dynamic of a group, you don't see a lot of them and you don't hear a lot of them. It's more of the straight ahead. These terms are very subjective of the straight ahead, rock or whatever. There's a lot of great players out there, but there's not a lot of contemporary groups like this that you hear a trombone and guitar screaming melodies over a rock rhythm section. So it's always been in my mind something that's unique. You say that after college, you moved to New York. How did that influence your career? It was all I wanted to do. I mean, I couldn't wait to move to New York. I knew that's where I wanted to be. I knew I wanted to be in New York from the time I was in high school. And when I got bit by that bug, I was you know, growing up in Denver, and the McDonald's All-American High School Band had been formed. They chose two students from every state to be in the marching band. They flew us to New York for the Macy's Parade and then to L.A. for the Rose Bowl Parade. And in 1977, which is my senior year in high school, I was one of the uh, two students from Colorado selected to be in the McDonald's All-American Band. They, of course, flew us to New York. And I thought New York was the coolest thing I'd ever seen. It was just like I had this feeling about it, you know, this electricity about it that I thought to myself, you know, right then, like, I, this is where I got to be. And that never changed. And, it, and it, I came to New York a couple of times when I was in college, once to uh, do some studying with a, um, an Amisher specialist, Roy Stevens. I figured I should finish school before I made any drastic changes. I finished college the spring of 82, May. By August, I packed my bag, packed my trombone, and off I went, and I, I never looked back. I moved to New York two months after finishing school. I came here with nothing. You know, I came here with $500 in my duffel bag and my trombone. I figured, well, just got to find a way to make it work. I've been here ever since. You met a specialist, Roy Stevens? Yes. What was his specialty? His specialty was brass embouchure. I was having some chops issues, some embouchure issues, and, and it was really, it was kind of frustrating. Okay, I, I have to stop you. I have to sure. stop you. What is armature? Armature is the way the brass player forms their lips in order to be able to blow through the mouthpiece. It's something that when you're a brass player, everything revolves around that. If you're not a brass player or if you're not a, a wind player at all, you wouldn't really have any, any familiarity with it. How you blow into the instrument has everything to do with how successful you are getting out a consistent production of sound. Roy Stevens was a brass embouchure specialist who had been uh, highly recommended to me for the issues that I felt I was having. And so I came to New York in college. I came one summer and spent a couple of weeks and took some lessons with him. You know, what he had to offer was exactly what I was looking for. He basically fixed me up. But when I finished college, I came to New York specifically to start to live here and to continue mm. studying with him both of which I did. I just have a question about some jazz terminology. You mentioned some terminology before, which I think I understand, but Ted Mills, who writes for Open Culture, calls smooth jazz the most unloved, and I'm quoting him, 
He calls smooth jazz the most unloved and derided of music genres. What is smooth jazz? What, what is that? And, and do you agree with his assessment? I, I don't want to be critical of any style of music, but I can understand why there is that notion out there that would say that about smooth jazz. Smooth jazz is what some people equate to as being like elevator music. I'm not criticizing it. I'm not saying that that's what I think it is. But smooth jazz is a more listenable kind of jazz than a more of a straight-ahead kind of jazz where there's a lot of improvising. And a lot of times in jazz, it's a very intellectual type of music where you have to understand it to really enjoy it, where there's a lot of improvisation. And, and oftentimes in jazz, it's not uncommon for the ensemble to play the head or the melody of the tune, and then the rest of the tune is built around people soloing off of the uh, melody and the chord changes of the tune, which is a lot of what jazz is, which makes jazz musicians, that's really interesting because the tune is all about the improvisation and what you do with those changes in the improvisation. In smooth jazz, it's more of a pop approach to jazz where the improvisation is not as important. It's more about the melodies are simpler generally, and they follow more of a pop song form. A lot of times they're in the, like an A-A-B-A song form, meaning you have a, a, a melody that goes to a bridge and then back to the main melody. To some people, that's very enjoyable, and it is certainly is a huge market because it doesn't require the listener to sit up and pay attention to it. It's, a lot of times they're like these easy kind of going grooves and people find them enjoyable to listen to. I do know a lot of jazz musicians who are very critical of it just because they use the word jazz, but jazz usually denotes music that there is a great emphasis placed on the improvisation aspect of it, which is one of the important, one of the most important aspects of jazz. Now, of course, there are there are many things that go with the improvisation. There's the, the whole rhythmic concept and, and harmonic concept that go with it. Still, when you think of jazz, it, it revolves around that ability to take a melody and then create your own melody over the chord changes. In smooth jazz, it really doesn't delve into those kind of idioms. It, stays much closer to the statement of the melody without an emphasis being placed on the improvisation that generally in jazz you associate with then what happens after the melody. Well, moving far from improvisation and smooth jazz, you also have done some work with radio commercials and TV commercials. What's involved in working in that medium? It's an interesting one because I did a number of commercials for radio. Back in the 80s, there was a company called American Vision Centers that was pretty big, especially in the East Coast. That was one of the spots that I did. And I just remember that there was a 60-second spot and a 30-second spot, and they wanted music that was easy to listen to, couldn't be too energetic, but it couldn't be too laid back. They give you these kind of these vague parameters of what they're looking for. They say they want it to sound orchestral. So then you listen to the spot. They usually give you a, an idea of what the spot sounds like with the vocal and what the content of the vocal is. And then you come up with it. They want a hook. They want a little melody, that a hook, a little memorable type of hook that, they, that could be associated with the brand of whatever it is that you're writing the commercial for. So they like it. The hook, it's all about the hook on the, uh, on, on the commercial. And that can be challenging because as a composer and an arranger, you never know like how complicated to make it or how simple to make it. You've got to try to find a middle ground that kind of meets those parameters that the advertising people are telling you you need to do. Before we run completely out of time, I, I want to say that we opened our show with Say What, which is from your latest album, Into the Night. Can you tell us a little bit about this album? Yes, indeed. Well, this is the concept of this album, this, this concept, you, you, you referred back to it at the beginning of the show about the fusion ensemble that I put together in the 90s that was led by two trombones, myself on tenor and then a bass trombones. 
the concept of the album is basically what we discussed, what we discussed earlier. The trombone is the lead instrument in fusion and rock propelled rhythmic element. It's all my original compositions. There are two standard tunes on the album, uh, two of my favorite tunes that I gave my treatment to them to fit with the personality of the album and the personality of the band. It's basically that concept of my compositions in that fusion setting. It took a long time to evolve because in the 90s, I did a lot of recording with the band and I did a lot of working on the evolution of that sound. And it was one of those things where you never know quite why something's working, why some things don't. I had a lot of interest from the record companies. A lot of the comments that I got is that it was you know, very fiery and very edgy. And a lot of times people weren't sure, they weren't sure what to do with it. Because also at that time, there was a, more of a trend toward the smooth jazz was becoming on vogue. And that was selling a lot of records. And so there was a lot of record companies that were looking at it kind of doing more than that and my material is definitely not new jazz i mean it's edgy and it's it's fiery and there's a lot of emphasis placed on groove and there's a lot of emphasis placed on the improvisation i try to find a balance between both of those so it took a long time to actually get the, to the point i still had to make a living i was doing lots of other gigs i was you know, i was subbing on broadway and i was playing lots of gigs for entertainment offices doing you know weddings and club dates and concerts and this and that it was difficult to keep trying to get it pushed through when, you know, I still had to make a living. And over the course of evolution between living in New York and then eventually moving out of New York into New Jersey, it took a while where I just, you know, I got to the point where I realized I need, still need to do this. It doesn't matter, you know, how many years ago I started. It's still something that, in my mind, still needs completion. Then three years ago, I decided it's time. And I put together a group of guys, a new group of guys, and I, and I uh, booked a, uh, a session in New York to play through some sketches of new, some new things that I was thinking about and, and some new ideas. And so we did that. We, we did a session one day, and I knew that it had to happen. We were going into 2020. None of us had any idea what was about to happen in 2020, but I booked a studio, Sound on Sound Studios in Montclair, New Jersey, to start recording the album in March of 2020. Well, that got totally derailed, as we all know, because of the pandemic that hit. And so now everything's closed, and now everything that I had been working on, been working on music, it all got just completely sidelined, and I had no idea what was going to happen. Well, after three months of that, I decided enough. Everything had been locked down, and I decided, well, we can't play live music. If we can't go out and play live music, we're going to create live music. And so I called some guys, some of my guys, and said, we're going to do an outdoor concert in my condo complex. I actually put on an outdoor concert with six musicians in June, the last part of June, in the development that I live in, in, uh, in I have a courtyard that faces out into a courtyard where everybody else's faces in the courtyard, and there's like 50, 50 units in this development. And I played right on my driveway, and everybody was hanging out and drinking wine on their balconies and, and just loving the fact that there was actually live music in June when everything had been closed because of the pandemic. For me, it was inspiring, it was thrilling. The guys in the band were like, oh, we got to do more. Well, we did another one of these concerts, and now I'm thinking, it's time. I'm going to make this recording project happen yet. Just about this time in August that some things started opening back up again on a limited basis. And Sound on Sound Studios, they called me and said, look, we're opening up again on a limited basis. Are you still interested in doing your album project? And I said, sign me up. You know, I, I booked out. I'm like, yes. So I did it with the band. We did this another outdoor concert in July. And I went crazy writing music. And I said to the guys, we're recording. Hold the month of August open. We're going to record. We started rehearsing in August, and we recorded the first half of the album at the end of August. 
of course, that being done now, I'm like, we got to get this thing the rest of the way done. And I went back to writing in September, and then we recorded the second half of Into the Night Thanksgiving week. From that point on, it was getting, you know, the final mixes done and mastering and all that. Anyway, we have it. And now we're due for release on Friday, April 2nd, which is next Friday. And the reviews are coming in. I'm getting great reviews from a lot of different publications and a lot of different writers that are listening to this. So I'm very uh, hopeful and very, uh, very positive that uh, we're going to get some good mileage for this. Why don't we take a, a listen to another track from your album called Mr. PC? You want to introduce it for us? Sure. The John Coltrane tune, Mr. PC, written for Paul Chambers. This has always been one of my favorite tunes. I mean, I just one of my favorite things to do is just play, you know, just improvise over a minor blues. And it's very simple. It's just a 12-bar form. But one point I started coming up with this idea for a bass line. Oftentimes I wake up in the middle of the night and there's something going through my head musically. And for years now, I've, I've gone to bed with a, a pad of music paper next to the bed. So when I wake up, I can sketch it out. I was blessed with perfect pitch, so I don't need to go to a piano to hear what I'm right, what I'm hearing. I just, I know what it is. I woke up one night, one night and I heard this bass line. I'm like, whoa. And I started hearing it with Mr. PC. And, and from that point, I, the more I started just experimenting with it and sketching it out, it started to develop into this arrangement. And then, you know, as I'm writing this arrangement, I'm thinking, oh, this has got to have horns. I started to hear a lot of stuff with it. And it turned out to be this piece where it actually transcends three different rhythmic venues. It starts off with straight ahead jazz, then it goes right into a rock groove, and then it goes back to straight ahead, then it goes into a Latin groove, and eventually ends up coming back to the rock groove to the end. But I certainly had a lot of fun working on this one. I know the guys in the band had a lot of fun playing it. It's what some people call a very, a very different take on a very traditional jazz standard. Let's take a listen to Mr. PC. All right. was Mr. PC from the latest album, Into the Night, performed by my guest, Eric Goletz. Who are the band members in this group? In addition to myself, obviously, there is Henry Heinrich on guitar, Mitch Schechter on piano, Mark Hagen is on bass, the legendary Steve Johns on drums, Joe Mowat on percussion, and in the horn section on two of the tunes on the album, Mr. PC and Steppin' Out, we have Vinnie Cutro on trumpet, Freddie Maxwell on trumpet, Bob Magnuson on alto sax, Eric Storkman on trombone, and Jonathan Greenberg on bass trombone. Eric, I had 20 more pages of questions for you, but unfortunately we're running out of time. I'd like to close out with Into the Night, and hopefully we can get to talk again real soon. I would love that, Marshall. That would be great, and thank you so much for having me. It's a pleasure to be on your show. All right. Into the Night from the latest album by Eric Goletz.
to Mr. Radio, and I'm your host, Marshall. This program was written and produced by Marshall. Mr. Radio is available wherever you get your podcasts, including iTunes and Spotify. Subscribe to our podcast and leave us a review. And don't forget to tune in next week for another episode of Mr. Radio.